More Strange Stories UK here again for Series 3, Episode 31. Um, We're calling this one Some Considerations on the Unlawful Death of Princess Diana. Well, this podcast was inspired by the recent fallout regarding the 1995 Martin Bashir interview of Princess Diana for the BBC flagship current affairs programme, Panorama. Plans for the programme had been kept secret from the pro-royal family top BBC executives and the BBC chairman of the Board of Governors, Marmaduke Hussey. His wife was godmother to Prince William and a confidant of the Queen. So this was kept from them and it's alleged that Diana was tricked into giving the interview by BBC staff. Anyhow, I thought an excuse to look into some aspects of the death of Princess Diana that slowly unfolded over a period of time, which is often the way when there is an awkward story that those who rule over us would rather see buried. During the BBC interview, Diana said that she'd been rejected by the royal family and the establishment. She also gave reasons why her marriage to Prince Charles failed. Relations between Princess Diana and the royal family were broken down completely by the time of the interview in November 1995. Princess Diana remained popular with the British public, although there were those who thought that she manipulated public opinion to her own advantage. There are some parallels with Meghan Markle, the relationship uh, she has with the royal family today although I think it would be fair to say that Princess Diana was held in more public affection than Meghan. The Ritz Hotel Paris is probably the most luxurious hotel in the world. And about 20 past midnight on the 31st of August 1997, the owner's son, Dodi El-Fayed, left in a black Mercedes W140 with Diana, Princess of Wales. In the front of the car was the driver, Henri Paul, and a bodyguard, Trevor Rhys-Jones. At 25 minutes past midnight, the Mercedes crashed into the 13th pillar of the Elma Tunnel under the River Seine in central Paris. The driver, Henri Paul, was killed instantly. The front passenger, Trevor Rhys-Jones, the bodyguard, who was employed by the El Fayed family, had serious facial injuries and was lucky to survive. In the back of the car, Dodi Fayed lay, lay mortally injured and Princess Diana was injured but still conscious. She had internal bleeding which needed surgery quickly. She eventually arrived at hospital at six minutes past two in the morning and was pronounced dead at four in the morning. I remember coming home in the early hours that Sunday morning. I'd had a heavy night out with friends and sobered up with a swim in the sea on the Brighton seafront. When I got home, I switched on the television and there was a grainy shot of a crashed Mercedes car and an announcement that Princess Diana had been involved in a road traffic accident. When the British public heard of the death of Diana, there was a surprising explosion of public grief and a sea of bouquets wrapped in cellophane outside Kensington Palace. That's where Princess Diana lived. 
More than one million bouquets were left at the London residence. By mid-September, the pile of flowers outside was five feet deep in places, and the bottom layer had started to decompose. Those visiting the site, about three million people, queued patiently to sign a condolences book and to leave their gifts. It was a surprise to most people to witness the mass public grief, which many thought was rather hysterical and irrational. I seem to remember some people, such as the Prime Minister of the time, Tony Blair, milking the situation to show what a compassionate person he was. There was hostility towards the royal family for their coldness towards Diana, the repressed emotions, their coldness, their affairs, and the media latched onto the decision not to fly the royal flag at half-mast. This was seen as a lack of respect towards Diana. Many people think that Diana and those in the car were killed by a joint MI6 CIA operation, the actual execution being carried out by a private security firm in order to make it a deniable operation. It has been suggested that the car was harassed by paparazzi uh, photographers who were being manipulated by phony paparazzi. The car was forced, well, the Mercedes car was forced into crashing either by a technique known as Boston Brake Stratagem or the driver was dazzled by a powerful flashlight causing him to lose control of the car while the car was nudged by another car causing it to crash. The driver, Henri Paul, possibly being injected with a cocktail of drugs and alcohol immediately after the crash to make him seem responsible. There are claims that when Diana was in the ambulance, it was deliberately slowed down getting to hospital. This was after it was discovered that she had survived the crash and therefore attempting to increase the chances of her dying through her internal injuries. Those that argue against a conspiracy to murder point out that how could those involved know about the journey, or the timing, or the route used? The counter-argument being that those in the security services manipulate situations and work on percentages. They had bugs, they had those working undercover on their behalf. Opinion polls indicate that almost 50% of the UK population thought there'd been some sort of cover-up regarding Diana's death. 34% disagreed with this and the rest of her don't knows. There was an inquest in 2008 that ruled that those who died in the car were killed unlawfully by persons unknown. Killed unlawfully would mean murdered or manslaughter, or death by dangerous driving. The French verdict that was given in 1999 was death caused by a drunk driver, Henri Paul. So the British and French verdicts are different. Two months before Princess Diana's death, Camilla Parker Bowles was involved in a car crash near Prince Charles's house in Wiltshire. Camilla having an affair with Charles at the time. Camilla came under some criticism as she left the scene with Charles's bodyguard before the police arrived, uh, leaving the woman in the other car trapped. This was supposedly due to anti-terrorist protocol. There are those who believe that this was a failed assassination attempt by MI5, intended to clean up a constitutional mess caused by an extramarital affairs by the heir to the throne, while also sending out a warning to Princess Diana. It was speculated by some that if Camilla had been killed, Diana would still be alive. 
Charles and Diana separated in 1992 and they divorced in 1996. It seems that Diana fell in love or lust easily and had a number of affairs. She was not always content and suffered depression. She did attempt self-harm and suffered from bulimia. Diana came under great scrutiny and pressure as it was claimed that she was the best known woman in the world at the time. Among Diana's flings after her separation, which of course were an embarrassment to the royal family, was a Pakistani heart doctor, Hasnik Khan. Diana was said to have been infatuated by him and was said to have had a wish to live in suburbia as his wife. At this time, Diana became very interested in all things Pakistan in cardiology and thought that by having a mixed-race baby, this would help relations between Muslims and Christians. It was said that she'd longed for a baby daughter by Khan, who she intended to call Allegra. So reported by the Evening Standard during Diana's inquest. Diana was devastated when Khan ended their relationship. Newspaper reports claim that Khan had been warned off by men in suits who called on him to say it would not be healthy for him to continue seeing the princess. I don't think he needed much persuading, as he was a private man who was very uncomfortable to be in the news. Various reports after the death of Diana brought up the letters written by her that predicted that her life would end early in a car crash. Diana wrote in October 1996, This particular phase of my life is the most dangerous. My husband is planning an accident in my car brake failure and serious head injury in order to make a path clear for him to marry. There was another theory that uh, claims that Dodie was the intended victim and that Diana was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It seems that Diana started to fear for her life after her former bodyguard, Barry Manneke, died in a road traffic accident in May 1987. He was transferred from his role as Diana's bodyguard after it was reported that they were in an inappropriate relationship. Diana claimed that she was in love with him. Diana thought that Manneke had been assassinated and she thought that it would be likely that she would have the same fate organised by MI5. Various reports on the death of Diana brought up the letter written by her that predicted that her life would end early in the car crash. Of course, it would clear the way for Prince Charles to marry who he wanted, and he would Prince Charles would not have an embarrassing ex-wife interfering with the upbringing of the future king, their son, Prince William. There were claims that the Suzuki motorbike that Manneke was a passenger when he died had been deliberately tampered with. Police reports thought that it was unlikely that he had been killed as the trip had been impromptu and could not have been planned. But anything can be planned for, and if a long shot pays off, then so much the better, as it won't look suspicious. A former lover of Princess Diana was James Hewitt, who it has been suggested is Prince Harry's father. When conducting his reported five-year affair with Diana, he claimed that he received threats onto his life, and members of the royal household warned him that his safety was in peril if he did not back off from his relationship with Diana. He also said that he received anonymous phone calls warning him off. It is thought that Stuart was being monitored by the security services 
and no action would be taken if the affair remained under the radar. After the Paris car crash, Mohamed El Fayed told of his suspicions well before the accusations were made about Henri Paul being unfit to drive. More about this later. After the so-called accident, El Fayed was reported as saying, I hope those bastards in the British government are satisfied now. El Fayed was particularly scathing about Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who he said had masterminded a plot to murder Diana and Dodie. When challenged, El Fayed responded, I have a right to say what I feel. Let Prince Philip sue me. He continued, Prince Philip has let writ several times recently about the Fayads. He's been banging on about his contempt for Dodie and how he is undesirable as a future stepfather to William and Harry. Others have said that Diana was under surveillance by the UK and the American intelligence. This seems likely, although none of the records have been made public. Nick Davis's book about Diana's troubled marriage claimed that she was about to publicly support the Palestinian cause, which would have upset the security services and the Israeli security services, which some people have suggested had a motive for killing Diana. It was also reported that Diana had upset the arms industry. It's widely reported that a friend of Diana's, Simone Simmons, reported that she heard a telephone call that a Tory MP, Sir Nicholas Soames, had made to her, warning her not to meddle in things that you know nothing about, because you know accidents can happen. The telephone call reportedly took place shortly after the Princess of Wales had returned from a trip from Angola connected with the anti-landmine campaign. Later, into an investigation into Diana's death, Operation Paget, more of which later, or the Paget Inquiry, Soames denied ever having had such a conversation with the Princess of Wales. And that was that. Soames was not even asked to produce phone records from that period in question. He was taken at his word. Paget does not elaborate or even examine the context in which the alleged call happened. A month before the alleged Soames phone call, in January 1997, Diana had taken the first unwitting steps towards becoming a political figure by visiting Angola as part of an international Red Cross campaign against landmines. What would normally have been a strictly humanitarian gesture was given a political dimension by the fact that John Major's failing Conservative government had stalled repeatedly on banning landmines whereas Labour was promising a foreign policy with an ethical dimension. Soames, who was funded by the arms industry and was a former minister of the armed forces and had the reputation as being the most sexist MP in the House of Commons, and Prince Charles was his best man at his wedding. So Nicholas Soames, being a close friend of Prince Charles, had spoken against Diana in the media a number of times and he accused her of being mentally ill when Diana accused her husband, Prince Charles, of having an affair with Camilla Parker Bowles. Soames was forced to apologise later when it was admitted that Diana was correct in her analysis. John Major, the Conservative Prime Minister, 
did not want to give Diana any sort of ambassadorial role. However, after Labour's general election victory in 1997, Diana was in discussions with Tony Blair about a unique semi-ambassadorial role, as Diana had taken on charity work and, of course, was on the crusade to ban landmines. By taking on these roles, Diana was raising her profile and may have this may have been seen as a threat to the royal family. But New Labour were more than happy to have somebody like Princess Diana on side. Diana's lifestyle, behaviour and relationships appear to have been a matter of continuing interest to the royal family after her separation and divorce from Prince Charles. There has been speculation that around this time, uh, around the time of the crash, uh, a group called the Way Ahead Group, which was the House of Windsor's Political Strategy Committee, was due to receive a report from MI6 on the relationship between Diana and Dodie. The Way Ahead Group was set up in 1993, following the collapse of various royal marriages and the Windsor Castle fire. It meets twice a year, at Balmoral in the summer and at Sandringham in the winter, and is headed by the Queen with the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince of Wales, the Princess Royal, the Duke of York and the Earl of Wessex, with senior members of the Royal Household including the Queen's Private Secretary and the Lord Chamberlain usually attending. Nothing has ever been made public about the meeting or the report. However, it is on record that the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, was scheduled to meet with the Royal Family on the weekend following the crash. Prince Philip had let it be known about his feelings for Princess Diana and his contempt for Dodie and how he would be undesirable as a future stepfather to William and Harry. Diana had been told in no uncertain terms about the consequences should she continue the relationship with Dodie. It's thought that Prince Philip wanted her to be exiled. He seemed to be under the illusion that he was still living in the Tudor period. It's ironic there was an article published in the Sunday Mirror newspaper about the Queen stripping Harrods of its royal crest on the day that Diana and Dodie died. The royal crest shows that the company supplies to the royal household. It was said that the final sentence of the article was on the saying, but now the royal family may decide it's time to settle up. The paparazzi were considered an important component in the events leading to the death of Diana and Dodie in Paris. There were strong suggestions that there were members of the security forces acting as phony paparazzi the night Diana died. James Anderson, a, a photographer whose body was found in the burnt-out wreckage of his car in a remote part of France in June 2000, was said to have been in the pay of one of the security services and doubts were cast over his alleged suicide. We will come back to this point later. Diana and Dodie had been the media sensation in 1997. Interest in their affair was further fuelled by rumours of an impending engagement and even a, and even a pregnancy, a prospect that was said to have appalled the royal family. The couple were relentlessly pursued by the paparazzi while sailing on Dodie Fayad's yacht, the Jonicle in southern France, where grainy pictures of them kissing attracted bids of half a million pounds. 
there was good money to be made by the paparazzi if they managed to obtain an interesting photograph. Diana and Dodie flew into Paris on August the 30th, 1997. When the pair arrived at uh, Le Bouget airfield in Paris from Sardinia, Dodie told his driver, Henri Paul, to evade the paparazzi who awaited them. Photographers followed them from the airport to Villa Windsor, a former home of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, now owned by Mohammed Al-Fayed. And then they went on to the Ritz Hotel, which was also owned by Fayad at the time. The presence of the paparazzi caused Dodi Fayad to change his dining plans for that evening, and he returned to the Ritz and planned to outwit the press waiting outside by sneaking out the back entrance when the regular limousine and backup car idled, one in front and one in the rear. The plan had been made by Henri Paul, who was friendly with Dodie, and had been deputy head of the security at the Ritz since 1986. He had driven and flown, he was also a pilot, for the El Fayad family. Stephen Darman was a motorcycle rider for one of the paparazzi. Later, he said that Henri Paul had been very joyful as he taunted photographers outside the Ritz Hotel on the night of the crash. Henri Paul was enjoying the cat and mouse game he was playing with them. Darman said, I think he wanted to give wrong leads to the photographers. He was trying to create a certain atmosphere of pressure and anticipa- anticipation. Stephen Darman was one of the first witnesses to arrive at the accident scene with his photographer, Romelad Ra. They had not been fooled by the diversion tactics and followed the Mercedes which he said could not keep up, they could not keep up with. His motorcycle was travelling at about 60 miles per hour. When they arrived at the scene of the crash, he opened the door of the Mercedes and said that Diana was still alive. Diamond said that at the crash site, there was soon a number of paparazzi who started taking photographs. Diamond said that the light of the flashes was so bright and continuous that the whole area was lit up. Two witnesses, Antonio Lopez Borges and Anna Simoel, also testified that photographers climbed onto the car in which Diana, Dodie and Paul lay dying and took photographs of them instead of helping them. Roma Laura admitted to being one of the leading pursuers, but that he only took photographs of the crash scene after the doctors arrived. This is probably not true and he was taking pictures as soon as he arrived, as did the other photographers, some of whom escaped before the police arrived. There are probably other photographs of the scene which did not come forward, but the police confiscated about 20 rolls of film, which were taken directly from the photographers. Such stories put the paparazzi under suspicion for gross negligence. They were investigated on the grounds of invasion of the couple's privacy. Five days after the crash, French magistrates put ten of the photographers under investigation for manslaughter. Suspicions grew that Henri Paul had signalled to a chosen paparazzi after CCTV footage seemed to indicate this. At the inquest in the UK in 2008, the coroner, Mr Scott Baker, 
said that there was so much confusion and conflicting accounts that it's very difficult to believe any version of events. Scott Baker also warned the jury that the paparazzi's police statements should be treated with caution as they were made after the police announced that Henri Paul, the driver, was above the drink-drive limit. And this is open to question also. Henri Paul was another central figure in trying to ascertain why Princess Diana died. His finances caused speculation that he was in the pay of either the security services or the media or both. He had received £75,000 in the weeks preceding the crash and had built up a total of £100,000 spread over 13 different bank accounts. He was also carrying the equivalent of £2,000 in French francs on the night of the crash. The amount of money in Paul's accounts is more than he would have been able to save from his Ritz Hotel salary. Where this money came from has never been satisfactorily explained. One allegation is that Paul was in the pay of the paparazzi, receiving money from them in exchange for providing details of guests' movements, enabling the photographers to be in position to snatch photographs of celebrities. Other theories suggest that Paul was an MI6 informer, paid to spy on Diana and Dodie. Others suggest that he was a Mossad agent and an informant for the French Foreign Intelligence Services. As head of security at the Ritz, or deputy head of security at the Ritz, Paul would have been ideally placed to observe and monitor the comings and goings of the guests. It seems certain that Henri Paul had close links with the security services and was most probably a member of the French equivalent of the special branch. An important person visiting Paris would be most likely to choose to stay at the Paris Ritz Hotel. It was thus likely that Paul could have been working for several different security services. The pressures involved could have, been made, could have made Paul reliant on antidepressants and alcohol. A former MI6 officer, Richard Tomlinson, said that he'd seen documentation that Henri Paul was a paid informant for MI6 in 1992. And Tomlinson says that MI6 tend not to drop a source of information. If elements within MI6 wanted to orchestrate a crash, they may have used Paul, who would not have had a clue what was being planned. He would just be collateral damage and someone to blame. Henri Paul was blamed by the French authorities, along with the paparazzi, as being responsible for the crash. However, there's a number of suspicious issues that have not been resolved. The main cause of the crash has been blamed on Henri Paul's consumption of alcohol and drugs just prior to it. CCTV footage from the Ritz security does not back this up, as he seems quite sober and in full control. Trevor Rees-Jones, the bodyguard, said that Paul was not drunk, and if he had suspected that he was, he would not have got in the car with Paul or allowed Diana and Doe to get in. Rees-Jones suffered severe concussion after the crash and doesn't remember anything, although he is certain that Paul would not have displayed any signs of being drunk. There are serious doubts about the blood tests carried out on Paul after his death. Blood samples taken from Henri Paul after the crash indicate that he was intoxicated to the extent that the head of anti-poison centre at a major Paris hospital was quoted as saying, I don't see how he could walk in that state, 
much less take the wheel. So this leads to three possibilities. One, his blood samples were swapped at some point. Two, his body was injected with drugs uh, immediately after the crash. And three, he was capable of drinking heavily but could still appear sober. Another mystery regarding the blood samples being that the near lethal dose of carbon monoxide found in Paul's blood samples. This could not be explained. CCTV showed Paul speaking to Ritz hotel staff two hours before the crash. If the blood sample tests were accurate, Paul would have had about 30% carbon monoxide level in his blood at this time, which would have left him feeling very unwell, probably unable to stand up and with a dreadful headache. He displayed none of these signs in the CCTV. Attempts to explain these high levels as a result of Paul breathing in and absorbing fumes from the Mercedes broken exhaust or airbags after the crash were dismissed as Paul died instantaneously from a broken neck. Also, no one else in the crash was found to have any trace of carbon monoxide in their blood. There are criticisms of the way Henri Paul's body, uh, body was handled after his death. It was negligent handling according to some. Paul's body was never officially identified to the pathologist, Dominic Lecomte. Few measurements were taken. It does not state in the pathology report where the blood samples were taken from. There was no start time and finish time recorded. And there was no tests taken on organs such as the pancreas and liver, which may have answered questions if Paul was an alcoholic or not. There is speculation over Henry Paul's blood samples, which expert legal witnesses at the British inquest confirmed that the carbon monoxide levels found in Paul's blood were more consistent with somebody who'd committed suicide by inhaling carbon monoxide fumes. It should also be noted here that there are suggestions that Henri Paul had a secret life and may have had suicidal tendencies. Well, regarding the car, the car involved in the crash was a Mercedes-Benz W140, a very well-made model with an excellent safety record. The car that was crashed was not the car that was originally going to be used by Diana and Dodie that night. Documents were released under Freedom of Information give conflicting accounts why the cars were switched at the last minute. A document from the British ambassador in Paris claimed that the car switch was because that the car they were intending to use failed to start. This document was dated the 31st of August 1997, the day of the crash. However, in a document dated the 23rd of September 1997, the story had changed. It was now claimed that there was a switch of cars with the intention of falling the paparazzi waiting outside the hotel. This has led to speculation that the Mercedes driven by Henri Paul, which was a lease car, may have been tampered with beforehand. The car had been stolen some months beforehand. A theory as to why the crash happened was that the Mercedes was electronically sabotaged by a radio signal that caused its accelerator and brakes to jam. It now appears that such technology does exist and can be operated in a number of ways one of which is called the Boston Brake Stratagem. 
Modern cars are operated by computers in a number of ways. The W140, for example, had an electronic stability program, EPS, operating to improve road handling, which was operated by onboard computers. Boston Brakes involves a steering and braking mechanism being taken over and controlled by an occupant of another vehicle. The Mercedes in question had been stolen during April 1997 and it was suggested that the theft was carried out so the Mercedes electronic system could be replaced with a unit pre-programmed to automatically alter the car's acceleration and braking systems when called on to do so. Another theory speculated that there was a device that would have remotely, uh, remotely activated as the car entered the tunnel, causing a device to explode and the front left wheel to deflate. The car would then immediately veer left and hit the tunnel pillars. Early news coverage of the crash carried interviews with witnesses who claimed to have heard an explosion either before or after the crash. It would be rather boring to tell of what the witnesses saw and heard, but there were a number of reports which loosely back each other up regarding a loud bang, screeching tyres and the noise of an impact. The main weakness of the idea of car tampering is how a potential assassin would know that a particular car was going to be used on the night of the crash. But in reply to this observation, the security services would prepare the car and try to manipulate a situation whereby the car would be used. And if it didn't work and it was unsuccessful, there may be a situation where it could be used in the future. So nothing lost. When the car was stolen in the April, thousands of pounds worth of damage were done to the controls. Although it was subsequently recovered and repaired, a dashboard warning light still indicated problems with the braking system. But according to the local Mercedes dealership, this was simply due to harmless air bubbles. The regular chauffeur of the Mercedes W140, an Oliver Lafay, claimed that there were dangerous quirks to the car. He said that it didn't hold the road properly. When the car was later examined by British forensic investigators, the car was found to be in good working order. Former MI5 officers Annie Manchin and David Shaler, in their book Spies, Lies and Whistleblowers, they speculated the accident was planned by British intelligence, but it wasn't intended to be fatal. Annie Matchin thought that the actual stupidity of some of the theories about Diana's death convinced her that the accident had in fact been murder. The stupid theories such as the gadget put on Henry Paul to release a nerve gas and cause him to crash had been a classic MI6 disinformation by suggesting a ridiculous conspiracy theory so as to muddy the water. If such an assassination is being planned, a car crash occurring in a place where the chances of witnesses being present is minimised would mean a tunnel would be a very suitable place. The Alma underpass tunnel under the River Seine would be a particularly good place as there are no crash wells installed to prevent the vehicle ramming into a pillar. Dodie and Diana were taken from the Ritz Hotel to Dodie's apartment at the Rue Larsen Jose. The quickest route would have been through the Palace de la Concorde and along the Avenue de Champs-Élysées. Henri Paul took a different route towards the Alma Tunnel. 
It's thought that he was trying to avoid traffic congestion at the Champs-Élysées and intended to turn right before the Alma Tunnel along the Rue Francois Premier. But it's thought that he was prevented from taking this right turn as a vehicle blocked the route. Was this deliberate, it was asked. It seems generally agreed that a white Fiat Uno and at least one motorcycle may have been near the Mercedes at the time of the crash. Traces of white paint supposedly from the Fiat were found on the crash car, encouraging speculation that the Fiat had collided with the Mercedes immediately prior to the crash. The Paget Inquiry report tells of a small dark car ahead of the Mercedes just before the crash, and a Mercedes with a pavilion passenger, which was first on the scene before all the pursuing paparazzi, uh, which later left without stopping. A witness to the Paget Inquiry said that the Mercedes hit the small dark car, lost control and smashed into the pillar. The small dark car then accelerated away. The Paget report tells of a slightly earlier impact with a white feed Uno about five metres outside the tunnel. Some eyewitnesses reported seeing a powerful motorcycle swerving in front of Diana's car at high speed. Brian Anderson, a Californian businessman travelling by taxi, saw the Mercedes being closely followed by two motorcycles, with the first motorcycle trying to get in front of the car. One theory is that the motorcyclist in question was attempting to slow down the Mercedes in order to allow the pursuing photographers to catch it up. That man said he saw no paparazzi around the car. But yet, one of the last pictures taken of the car seconds before the crash is literally taken through the front windscreen, and you can clearly see Trevor Reese Jones looking straight at the camera in front of them and looking worried and rattled by it. Dinah's head is turned round at the back of her head, showing uh, it to avoid the paparazzi, which they said was taken just before it crashed. The photograph must have been from one of the rolls of film taken from the French police, taken by the French police. But it does again ask questions as to were the paparazzi present when the car crashed or not. This was never made clear, but the, the photograph suggests that they were present if the photograph was taken just before the crash. But all this is open to question. We now come to the laser gun theory. Witnesses claim to have seen a very bright flash of light. I seem to remember that in 1997, this being a time of something of a moral panic over laser guns or pens. Beams of light were being shone at car and train drivers and pilots coming into land. Laser pens being banned in schools. So the laser gun would have been a topical method. Witnesses claim that a pillion passenger on a motorcycle cycle had a device that caused a flash of light aimed at the Mercedes. Other witnesses argue that when the car crashed there was no flash of light or any other vehicles near the Mercedes. So conflicting reports. The strobe-like theory uh, that was thought to have been used to dazzle or disorientate Henri Paul was given a lot of publicity in the ITV documentary Diana the Secrets Behind the Crash. A lot of the program was given over to the account of Francois Leviste, a.k.a. Frank Levi, 
who claimed to have seen the light flash as he drove into the Alma Tunnel. Francois Levistre, or Levy, or Levi, was discredited uh, by the French investigation as being a notorious charlatan, although other witnesses back up his story. Brenda Wells, who was a British secretary living in Paris in 1997. Brenda said that after a party with friends, she was returning home. A motorbike with two men forced her to pull over on the road. It was followed by a car. After that, a big black car arrived. The big car, the Mercedes, had come off the road. Brenda said that she saw strong lights. She stopped her car and said that five or six motorbikes arrived and started taking photographs. She was definite that she saw a strong light before the flashing of the paparazzi cameras. Brenda Wells left her flat in champigny sur marne shortly after giving her statements to the French police. It subsequently transpired that she and her husband had been told to go into hiding and not to speak to anybody about what she'd seen. The use of flash guns to dazzle and confuse drivers is a device that's been used by a group known as Spetsnaz, a group of former Red Army commandos turned mercenaries. It's also used by the KGB Special Forces units. The device used was a very powerful military torch. It was claimed that Luce Eigendorf, an East German football player, who defected to West Germany was killed when a blinding light was shone in his face when he was driving. Unfortunately for Eigendorf, he played for BFC Dynamo, a club run by the Stasi, the secret police, and his defection proved to be an embarrassing one. It was ruled an accident and Eigendorf was buried without an autopsy, but it is generally believed that he was killed by the secret police. And although the case remains unsolved, it's a well-known case in Germany. Richard Tomlinson, who was an ex-MI6 agent, who later worked for Al-Fayed, claimed that one of the paparazzi that night was working for MI6 and was on a very fast motorbike. Richard Tomlinson reported how MI6 had at one time considered assassinating President Milosevic by disorientating his chauffeur by using a blinding strobe light as he passed through a Geneva motorway tunnel this being confirmed by others. A road traffic accident is always a good cover for an assassination, and if others were to die, then it would throw up more of a smokescreen. However, this plan was aborted by senior management. Other witnesses argue that when the car crashed, there was no flash of light or any other vehicles near the Mercedes when it crashed. Some witnesses remember seeing a white Fiat possibly with a dog in the back seat, died out of the tunnel seconds after the crash. However, the situation is confused with many different accounts. There was a white Fiat Uno thought to have been driven by a Vietnamese immigrant, Lee Van Phan. He owned a white Fiat Uno that was involved in some kind of crash on the night of the 30th, uh, 31st of August, which was surreptitiously repaired and resprayed red. One serious discrepancy is that the witness to the UNO leaving the tunnel accurately described Lee's vehicle, right down to the dog in the back seat, but got a good look at the driver and described him as a European male, aged about 50, with short brown hair. Lee Van Phan is Asian, he was 22 years of age at the time, and he had a thick mop of Jap black hair.
A further anomaly is that the UNO witness did not hear the sound of an impact behind them and did not hear the blaring of the Mercedes jammed horn as Henry Paul was jammed against it after the crash. One possibility would be that the UNO witness's sighting happened slightly before the Mercedes crash. Lee Van Fan was not mentioned once in the entire budget inquiry report and he did not intend, attend the inquest. An unsuccessful nationwide search for the Fiat Uno was carried out by French investigators. Mohamed Al-Fayed's own investigating team announced that they had located the car following its sale in November 1997 to a garage near Paris. It was claimed that it belonged to a photojournalist with an interest in Diana's activities. This was probably the Frenchman who made his living as a member of the paparazzi, or perhaps the phony paparazzi, as he may have been working for one of the security services, or so it's been suggested. suggested. This was James Ananderson, the press photographer whose body was found in the burnt-out wreckage of his car in a remote part of France in June 2000. Mohamed El-Fayed and others believe that he was the driver of the Wyatt Finaduno seen near the crash. It's all rather confusing, perhaps deliberately so, but it is rather incredible that the car was never definitely tracked down. Unfortunately, none of the CCTV cameras were working that night. Paris, which is one of the most sophisticated video surveillance systems in the world, while not every camera is monitored, all cameras will record a videotape, and tapes are saved for two days in the event they are needed to review a crime or an auto accident. But not apparently on this occasion. There were rumours of the electricity supply to the tunnel being cut off 25 minutes before the crash. This turned off the CCTV cameras. Mohamed Al-Fayed lawyers requested copies of the tapes from the 17 cameras which covered the route from the Ritz to the tunnel and were told by the Paris police that no tapes existed for, the, for these cameras which is clearly very odd. In the ITV documentary Diana, the Paris crash, forensic experts on the car crashes concluded that a white Fiat Uno had straddled the middle of the tunnel in an effort to slow down the Mercedes and to allow a powerful motorcycle to cut in front of the Mercedes, which caused the fatal crash. Both the Fiat and the motorcycle sped out of the tunnel and disappeared from sight according to a number of eyewitness descriptions. Gary Hunter was a British lawyer on holiday in Paris. He was watching television in his hotel room when he heard the crash. He went to the window and saw people running towards the tunnel. Seconds later he saw a small dark car possibly a Fiat Uno or a Renault, turning from the area uh, by the tunnel exit and roaring down the Rougin Goujon. He also claimed that it was being shadowed by a second vehicle, a white Mercedes. Other reports argue that the initial collision between the Mercedes and the Fiat occurred before the Mercedes entered the tunnel. The actual crash was caused by a Mercedes blocked by another car, a slower moving car in front of it, in the tunnel. After the crash, there were reports of a lone individual either chasing people away or shouting at people to keep away from the tunnel directly after the accident. This could have been the man who was reportedly running out of the tunnel immediately before the crash, yelling, Get back! It's going to explode! This person was never traced. 
three American tourists, Tom Richardson, jo- uh, Joanne Lutz, and Mike Walker, running into the tunnel to uh, offer assistance, said they saw somebody jump from the crash car. This is speculation that it may have been the same person who was thought by some to have moved Henri Paul's body off the car horn to stop it blaring out. Trevor Reese jones who was the bodyguard that survived the crash, published his own account of the incident. Or to be more accurate, an account of which he admitted to remembering. His book, The Bodyguard's Story, Diana, The Crash and the Sole Survivor. As the author had no recollection of what actually happened during the car ride, he could offer no evidence of what happened during the fatal journey. It was thus questioned why he either bothered writing the book, although it does raise a couple of issues. Rhys Jones now claims he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, and that was a mistaken observation made by one of his rescuers, just after the crash that ended in uh, police reports. Bodyguards are expected not to be wearing a seatbelt, as they need to have maximum mobility in case of emergencies. And this was a criticism originally levelled at Rhys Jones when it was said that the reason that he survived the crash was because he had his seatbelt on. Why Diana, Dodie and Henri Paul were not wearing their seatbelts remains unexplained. There were suggestions that their seatbelts had been adapted to appear to be on, but in the case of a crash would uh, fall out, not work. Rhys Jones criticised Dodie Fayad's behaviour. He said that Dodie did not tell people his plans, so it was difficult for a bodyguard to set up security. He also said that the paparazzi created the atmosphere which allowed the crash to happen. Rhys Jones thinks that he had false memories or dreams of something that happened in the car immediately after the crash, about somebody calling out for Dodie, who entered the car, and Rhys Jones was fighting the person off. Rhys Jones can't be sure if the memories are true or or not. The author and investigative journalist and probable CIA informant, Gerald Posner, thought that Rhys Jones may not have been intended to survive the accident or crash. Posner reported that uh, Jacqueline Buffor, a nurse in Le Petit Salpetri Hospital where Rhys Jones was recovering from his injuries, made a statement in which she claimed that on the night of September the 9th and 10th, 1997, she discovered that Rhys Jones suddenly had difficulties breathing and was slipping into a coma. She warned the doctor immediately and he was able to reanimate him. An investigation brought to light that the pain-killing morphine dose was tripled, a dose that's only used in the case of euthanasia. The French police believe that a person gained access with a false ID card. One of the suspects is an unknown member of the security staff at the Ritz Hotel, who bought Trevor Reese Jones some flowers. Diana's medical treatment was criticised after the crash. Eric Patil was a motorcyclist who claims to have been the first person to arrive at the scene of the crash. He said he opened the car door and saw a beautiful woman, whom he recognised. She was not moving, but her eyelids were flickering. She had blood coming from her ear. In a more detailed account, Patil describes how Diana had slid off the back seat. Her head was resting between the two front seats. He went into the car and pulled the woman upright, putting her head back on the rear red armrest. Blood was flowing, uh, flowing from above her right ear. 
Although Petter has been dismissed by the French police as a hoaxer, he was eventually interviewed by the investigating French magistrate, Judge Stéphane, who admitted that he was inclined to believe Petel's story. The first doctor on the scene was Frédéric Malise, who was passing at the time of the crash. He said to have found an elegant woman sitting on the floor of the car with her legs on the rear seat, leaning against the back of the passenger front seat. Diana was groaning and making movements with her hands. Melisse reported that Diana had no visible injuries but was in shock. Frederick Melisse attended Diana until the ambulance arrived and was astounded to read the next day that she had died. The young woman had the best chance of coming out all right, he had assured a friend. Jean-Marc Martino was the emergency services surgeon Jean-Marc Martino was the emergency services surgeon who was part of the medical team in the resuscitation ambulance. He said that Diana was agitated and was crying out and didn't seem to understand what I was saying to reassure her. She was moving her left arm and right leg. She was talking incoherently and in a confused way. Her right arm was bent behind her. She was trapped between the offside front seat and the back seat. With the help of firemen to get her out, we managed to do it with great difficulty. The chief fireman said Diana suddenly came to when being lifted from the wreckage. Her last words were, My God, what's happened? Sebastian Dorez, uh, sorry, Dorzy, was one of the first gendarmes on the scene, and he said that Diana's head was between the two front seats. She could see Dodie. She moved. She opened her eyes and mumbled in a foreign language. I think she said, my God, when she saw that her friend was dead. She was rubbing her stomach at the same time. She must have been in pain. She saw the driver and probably realised what had happened. She became upset. A few seconds later she looked at me and then put her head down and closed her eyes. Others reported that she was either drifting in and out of consciousness or regaining at least a state of semi-consciousness, speaking a few words and seeming confused and agitated. It has been rumoured that the paparazzi photographs seized by the police and developed by the French investigators allegedly showed Diana with her eyes open, apparently conscious and unhurt, with no signs of blood on her body or clothes. Some early BBC bulletins even went to fire as to describe her as walking and talking with a broken arm. The initial diagnosis of Diana's condition was hopeful, but it was later reported that she was bleeding massively from internal injuries. This meant that her blood pressure would have dropped to an extremely low critical level, and according to medical opinion, she should have been moved to hospital immediately. It was reported that Diana had gone into cardiac arrest while in the ambulance, and she had to be resuscitated and then given cardiac massage. It was later stated that her heart had been displaced and shifted to the right in her chest. This had torn the plumbery vein, causing internal bleeding. The delay in getting her to hospital, however, was not necessarily due to negligence, but resulted from the French standard uh, medical procedures, which entailed stabilising accident victims as much as possible before moving them to hospital. 
When Diana was released from the wreckage of the car and placed into an ambulance, it took 40 minutes for the ambulance to travel four miles to the Petit Salpetriere Hospital, a journey which, given the lack of traffic and the fact that the police escort was provided, could have been completed in 10 minutes. The official explanation was that the ambulance proceeded slowly, five miles per hour at some point, so as not to aggravate Diana's injuries. Almost within sight of the hospital at the Pont d'Astelitz, the ambulance was reported to have pulled off the road in order to give Diane adrenaline. But the hospital doctors are later said to have denied that this took place. Later reports on Diana's injuries were confused. Some argued the injuries were so great that she was unlikely to have lived. Other sources claimed that the delay in getting into hospital had reduced her chances of survival. The hospital was not the nearest to the crash site. There were said to be four nearer, but the, the hospital she was taken to was the best equipped and designated by the USA as the hospital to be used by US officials visiting Paris. Gerald Posner, the CIA-friendly journalist, revealed that Diana had been monitored by the NSA as part of the incidental part of a separate monitoring operation. The NSA refused to acknowledge that surveillance tapes existed, but it did admit that it had 39 classified documents about Diana, totalling about 124 pages, which caused some comment. Posner also reported that the driver of the car in which Diana was killed, Henri Paul, had met with his French intelligence handler in the hours before the fatal crash. Gerald Posner was certainly well connected and claims to have seen photographs of Diana taken immediately after the crash as she, when she was trapped in the smashed Mercedes. Posner said that Diana looked uninjured, except for a gash over an eye. Her eyes were closed, but he suggests that this was due to shut out the bright light uh, caused by the camera flashes just inches from her face. It was said that Diana had no significant external injuries, but she was semi-conscious and her blood pressure was low and she had difficulty breathing. Diana's rupture of her left pulmonary vein was not large enough to cause instant death, but was slowly filling her chest cavity with blood. Such an injury means it's very important to get the patient to hospital as soon as possible, so that the delay in getting her to hospital could have been the reason that she died. Posner claims that he had intelligence that the British Home Secretary's office had contacted the pathologist during the autopsy to request that no mention of any pregnancy was included in the final report. Questions were later asked as to why Princess Diana's body was embalmed. Many experts criticised the decision by the French doctors to embalm the top half of Diana's body before a post-mortem could be completed. This was said to be highly unusual and it's also contrary to French law, which prohibits the process if a post-mortem is to be performed, and it also requires the permission of a judge and the next of kin. Although it is known that a leading French pathologist, Professor Dominique Lecomte, carried out the embalming, it's uncertain whose instructions she was following. The French claimed that the British officials had ordered the embalming. The Royal Coroner, John Burton, claimed that it was normal to embalm bodies being flown from one country to another. The decision to embalm the Princess and fly her to Britain within hours of the tragedy was taken in London. 
the order was passed on to the French authorities by the British ambassador Michael Jay. Who gave him the instructions is not known. And so this prevented a full autopsy being carried out in Paris at that time. Michael J claims he had no recollection of any request to embalm being made and said the decision had been made by the French, in doing so breaking French law. When the post-mortem was carried out in London it was said that the embalming was a clumsy job and although not completely embalming it, it would have been sufficient to rule out any pregnancy testing. Actions of the French authorities when questioned as they had ordered that the crash scene be cleaned up immediately and any evidence was removed from the crash scene before forensics had a chance to make any investigation. Following the crash, the French public prosecutor launched an investigation into the part played by the ten press photographers, members of a group of paparazzi who had been training Diana and Dodi since their arrival in Paris. They had driven after Mercedes on its last journey and were widely regarded as being the primary cause of the crash. Specifically, the ten were charged with failing to assist people in danger and involuntary homicide or involuntary injury. Two years later, on the 3rd of September 1999, the examining magistrate, Irv Stevan, and Marie-Christine Divadel handed down a ruling dismissing charges against all persons charged in the case. On the same day, the public prosecution, I beg your pardon, the public prosecutor issued a report identifying the inebriated condition of Henri Paul as the main cause of the crash. In his capacity as the investigator of the fatal journey from the Ritz Hotel, Dodi Foyard was also implicitly criticised. The main thrust of the report, however, concentrated on the behaviour of the paparazzi. What it didn't do was satisfactorily explain or investigate any of the conflicting accounts of the crash itself. Al-Fayed, or Mohammed Al-Fayed, was accusing the Prince uh, Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, of being the mastermind behind the plot to murder Diane and Dodie, and he wanted inquests on Diane and Dodie to take place in France. Al-Fayed's views and the interventions of the bereaved father were said to have been counterproductive to the French investigation, as his accusations tended to have been ignored, and as a result not properly investigated by the French investigators. There was also mixed messages in reporting of the French inquiry. The findings of the French uh, public prosecutor were announced in September 1999. Most newspapers implied that they were publish, publishing either the full report or they had seen the full report and were publishing extracts from it. This was not true. The French authorities had since stated that the report is confidential and could only be seen by employees of the police and the Department of Justice. And the, Department of Justice. the complete report was never made available for public information. Another rather shocking finding was the treatment of Henri Paul's body after the crash, and it seriously weakened the case that Henri Paul was drunk when he was killed. Normally, when a body arrives at the Paris morgue, it's measured, weighed, tagged, and then it should be placed in a refrigerator to await examination by a pathologist. The bodies of Henri Paul and Dodi Al-Fayed were not placed in a refrigerator. August 1997 was one of the hottest months on record in Paris. 
The post-mortem examination was conducted at 8 o'clock on the morning of the 31st of August 1997, according to the Paget Inquiry, a few hours after the accident. What the Paget Inquiry did not make clear is that the time before the autopsy was uh, about 8 hours, and when Paul's still warm corpse was being left decomposing in an unfrigerated room at the height of summer. Experts say that there's a problem with an unrefrigerated body in that the blood would ferment after death, producing alcohol which cannot be distinguished from ingested alcohol. It can be inferred from the glucose levels, but uh, Paget never attempted to do this. This posthumously fermented alcohol, which is produced even faster in the presence of pre-ingested alcohol, will quickly spread through the corpse, relying on osmosis via body water and tending towards an uneven distribution, thus rendering useless attempts to make comparison readings from, for example, eye fluid. While Paul's blood was beginning to ferment, a second process was occurring, clotting. It is normal procedure to administer an anticoagulant to the posthumous blood samples to fix the distribution of uh, chemicals. Without going into too much detail about the chemical processes, this will affect the blood alcohol concentration, giving it a higher reading. Mohammed Al-Fayed remains convinced that the carbon monoxide level found in the blood was because Henry Henri Paul's sample had been switched with a sample from a suicide victim who had used car exhaust fumes to kill himself. The French authorities destroyed evidence after the London Metropolitan Police report, the Paget Inquiry. The, the destroyed evidence, including photographs taken at the crash scene and parts of the Mercedes car. The car's front door, an offside hubcap, um, and the anterior sill and several paint samples taken from the car and the tunnel were all destroyed in an unexplained fire that occurred in a secure storeroom of the Palais de Justice on the 26th of May 1999. The car's front right wing was destroyed under orders from a French judge on the 17th of June 2003, since no further use was foreseen for, uh, for it. Pressed about this destruction of evidence, a Scotland Yard spokesman said, We refuse to discuss it. That's not even confirming or denying it. We just don't want to talk about it. It was never explained why the Paget Inquiry did not request evidence from the French before it was destroyed, but it seems very suspicious given the controversy of the case. Bridget held evidence also went missing. These included alleged threatening letters to Diana from Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. That they existed were confirmed by police notes and Paul Burrell, Diana's butler. The pageant inquiry asked Philip if he had sent the letters, but he didn't even bother to reply. There were also videotapes that went missing, 14 of which were owned by Diana's voice tutor, Peter Settelen and six others were taken from Paul Burrell's home. These videos were seized by the police, but then went missing. The six tapes taken from Burrell did reappear, and these included footage that Diana was talking about her former bodyguard, Barry Manneke, being assassinated by MI5, according to her, and Diana's reflections about her husband, Prince Charles' affair with Camilla, the now Duchess of Cornwall. 
Although there had been a French inquest into the accident, or crash, this was not considered rigorous by many in the UK. The French inquest was flawed and inconsistent. There was a 10,000 word report summary issued in 1999 by the French investigative magistrate Hervé Steven, the title of which alone, Accident Mortel de la Circulation, 31st of the 8th, 97, 00, 00 hours 30, which managed simultaneously to predefine the crash as an accident and get the time of the crash wrong by seven minutes. Because it happened at 23 minutes past uh, 12. An inquest in the UK was considered legally necessary as allegations were being made that a crime had been taken place on UK soil, namely conspiracy to murder. The inquests into the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, and Mr. Dodi El Fayed in Paris on the 31st of August 1997 were opened in the UK on the 6th of January 2004. Initially, the coroner was Michael Burgess, who was coroner of the Queen's Household, which rules that members of the jury must be made up from the royal household. This ridiculously archaic rule being abolished after criticism in 2005. Diana's inquest was to be held at Queen Elizabeth II Conference Centre in the morning and Dodie's would be held in the afternoon at Rygate. The coroner then made a statement to the media summarising the circumstances of the crash and pointing out that the inquest had been unavoidably delayed because of continuing French inquiries and related legal appeals in the French courts. Towards the end of the statement, much to the surprise of the 200 assembled reporters, the coroner announced that he had asked the Metropolitan Police Commissioner to make inquiries and interview witnesses on his behalf. This was to be known as the Operation Paget, or the Paget Inquiry, headed by Lord Stevens, who was head of the Metropolitan Police. So Paget kicked off in 2004. Operation was Operation Paget was selectively leaked before its publication in 2006. It would produce computer models and plans of the crash scene and a Metropolitan Police Traffic Officer, an expert in collision investigation, uh, to be included in the team. It was being reported that there was a belief within Scotland Yard that the French reached the correct conclusion about the deaths, that they were caused by a straightforward crash that resulted from a powerful car being driven by an intoxicated driver too fast. As the inquiry progressed, however, there seemed to have been a change of mind, with Stevens himself admitting that the investigation was more complex than any of us thought, and that some of the issues that had been raised by Mr Al-Fayed, he had been correct to raise them. Lord Stevens' office were burgled twice in the space of a fortnight in February 2006, with the computer being stolen and no trace of forced entry being left behind on either occasion, suggesting that the intelligence services were wondering how the investigations were going. Operation Paget also investigated a collision between a white Fiat Uno and Princess Diane's BMW. This head-on collision happened on the 22nd of March 1996 on the Cromwell Road, Kensington, when a casino employee lost control of a sports car and shunted the driverless Uno, um, Uno into incoming traffic. 
which happened to be Princess Di's BMW. After a request under the Freedom of Information Act, the Metropolitan Police Services asked Kensington and Chelsea Police and SO14, the Royal Protection, to examine their files for material about this incident. But all documents had been routinely destroyed in 2000, the written records and the computerised records in 2003, so just before the January 2004 creation of Operation Paget, all records had been destroyed. Published in 2000, December 2006, Paget claimed to be the definitive last word on the Diana case, a triumph for reason over the forces of conspiratorial thought. Paget did not attempt to find the cause of the parish crash, which they considered to be a task for the inquest. Many considered the Paget inquiry ignored certain types of evidence, such as the well-documented conspiracy to damage Diana's reputation in the early 1990s, when her intimate telephone conversations with her then-lover James Gilby were recorded, doctored and repeatedly re-broadcast. When these broadcasts were recorded by radio hams, the tapes quickly ended up in the hands of The Sun, supplied by members of MI5 to discredit her, allegedly. These became known as the Squidgygate tapes, Gilby's name for Diana being Squidgy. The Paget report gave full witness names, unlike the French inquest that gave confusing mixture of pseudonyms and initials. The Paget report was published on the internet, unlike the French inquest which was unpublished other than a summarised account. But there were other strong criticisms of the Paget report. For example, it claimed that British security services had no involvement in illegal activities such as assassinations. This is clearly nonsense as people have been killed. One only has to think of the IRA operatives in Northern Ireland, without going into other controversial cases. Lord Stevens knew exactly what had gone on in Northern Ireland, as he himself had presided over an external police inquiry into allegations of collusion between the army, the Royal Ulster Constabulary and Loyalist terrorists in the murder of Irish nationalists that reported in 2003 and upheld the claims that collusion had taken place. Having researched previous podcasts on this subject, there is little doubt that the British security services murdered people for political convenience. The Dirty Tricks Department of the security services were also working overtime to try to discredit Al-Fayed and Princess Diana. Al-Fayed being accused of theft from a Harrod safety deposit box, which proved false. The inquest finally concluded on the 7th of April 2008 when the jury returned its verdict. There were three coroners overall during the public hearings and from June 2007 the coroner was Lord Justice Scott Baker. The inquest reached the same conclusions as the Metropolitan Police's inquiry Operation Paget under Lord Stevens which delivered its verdict in 2006 that Diana had died as a result of an accident caused by her driver being drunk and driving at speed while being pursued by paparazzi photographers who were following them. In its summing up, the coroner told the jury they had to be strongly convinced of culpability before returning a verdict of unlawful killing. 
The inquest heard no evidence that assassins were in the vehicles that followed the Mercedes on its high-speed journey, despite accusations from Lord Al-Fayed and others that the vehicles were following the Mercedes were not paparazzi, <clears throat> but this, uh, this was admitted by the inquest but was never explained. Although they had been asked for, an un um, for a unanimous verdict, the jury told Lord Justice Scott Baker in mid-afternoon that they could not reach a unanimous verdict, only a majority decision. When he allowed that, they returned w within the hour with a split of nine to two. On the 7th of April 2008, the jury came to the verdict that Diana and Dodie were unlawfully killed. So what role do the Secret Intelligence Services, MI6, and the Security Services, MI5, actually play? Unsurprisingly, MI5 and MI6 have denied any involvement in the crash. Equally unsurprisingly, their denial has not halted speculation. Members of the so-called MI6 death squad were allegedly in Paris on the night of the crash, and they were allegedly tasked with ensuring the princess's death was swiftly passed off to the world as a tragic accident. Six MI6 agents were stationed in the British Embassy in Paris on the weekend of the crash. At least one officer was detailed to shadow Diana and Dodie after their arrival from Sardinia. One of the senior MI6 officers alleged to have been in Paris on the night of the crash was Richard Dearlove, the then Director of Operations. In 1998, he became Assistant Chief of the Secret Intelligence Service, that's MI6, and then the following February, he succeeded Sir David Spedding as the Chief of MI6. According to XMI5 whistleblower David Shaler, MI6 wanted to stop Diana's romance with Dodie. Shaler, whose views were not unique, thought that Diana was either getting married to Dodie or that she was pregnant and they wanted to get rid of Dodie and for Dinah to miscarry in poss uh, the, the possible pregnancy. As already pointed out, Shelley did not think they wanted Dinah killed, as they did not want to make her a martyr. Shelley thought there was a number of suspects, including the House of Windsor, the establishment, believed to fear that Diana would marry Dodie, and they could not accept the mother of a future monarch becoming a Muslim. Um, the arms industry that were angered by Dinah's involvement in the campaign to ban landmines. There was the security services, specifically MI6, the Americans, the French, the South Africans and the Israeli secret services may have also provided assistance. The Israelis, especially after the death of Yitzhak Rabin, but this was not the place to examine this, that incident. Shayla thought that there was a faction inside MI6, part of the Eton Oxford Guards clique, who see themselves as literally as defenders of the realm, defenders of the royal family. The inquest can be seen as something as a whitewash, as have other public inquiries and inquests in the past, which have tried to restrict the terms of reference. Even so, the unlawful killings was only a partial success for those that would have preferred a verdict of accidental killings. Henri Paul and the paparazzi proved convenient people to blame things on. Allegedly. Well, um, I'm going to start just doing a podcast every three weeks. 
until July when I'll take a, a month off and season four will start um, during late August or during September. I have to cut back on my recording for a while as I have some other projects which I'm working on including some building work which I'm trying to do. I'm trying to lay some concrete floors at the moment by watching Google tutorials and um, so I'm busy for the next couple of months but I will continue to put out the occasional podcast hopefully once every three weeks until September when I'll go back to every uh, bi-weekly. So I would like to thank everybody for uh, for tuning in, uh, to listening, downloading the podcast. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. Thank you.